Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. chapter 12 from verse 27 now is my soul troubled what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this purpose I have come to this hour father glorify your name then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it and I will glorify it again The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Beloved brethren, brothers and sisters and friends, we we come to the the exposition of God's word here in in the 12th chapter of gospel as we have been working our way through this chapter for many, many months now. And we'll just continue as we have always, and the, the beauty is that now our brother Nelson is back, and it's good to have him back, that uh, we have had a, a two-week break from the gospel, according to John, although that break was still in the same author, but the epistle, not the gospel. So we're still in John, essentially the same author, but it is still the Word of God, the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit for our hearts. If you recall the last time we were in the gospel according to John, we we spent some time in verse 31. In fact, we spent a couple of weeks expounding verse 31 in the text that is before us. And the reason for that is because I wanted to slow down as we worked our way and unpacked verse 31 through 33. Uh, I wanted to take our times because this is our Lord opening his mouth with sublime truths. Very rich doctrine is being preached here by the mouth of our Lord. And I, and I wanted us just to take time to, to drink it all in. The context hasn't changed. He's still there in Jerusalem. He has entered into Jerusalem only days earlier. And in a few days' time, he's going to be led to the cross where he'll willingly lay down his life for his people. So nothing has changed in, in that respect 
But before he lays down his life among this multitude that are before him, who who are still at this point very encouraged by him and and very eager to see this Jesus crowned as, as king. They're there for a reason. They believe he's the messianic king. They believe he has come to establish his kingdom, at least for now. As they are before him, Jesus doesn't deny the fact that he's king, nor does he deny the fact that he's establishing a kingdom, but he wants them to understand that the type of king that he is and the type of kingdom he establishes is a little different to what they have in their heart. In fact, it's a lot different to what they have in their hearts because this king is going to lay down his life for his people. They'll hear about this. In a few weeks' time, we'll see what they say and they're not going to like what Jesus says because they don't want a king who lays down his life They don't want a suffering king. They don't want a king who is going to see the grave. That's not their intention. That's not what they want. But Jesus opening his mouth in verses 31 through 33 will will now express and articulate in his own words what exactly he'll accomplish in his death. Three outcomes that will come from the death of our Savior upon the cross. At least three outcomes in this text. Three statements of facts, if you will, from the mouth of our Lord that will come from his sacrificial death in only a few days' time there in Jerusalem. And we've addressed the first two. In separate sermons, we've addressed the first two. The first being, now is the judgment of the world. And the second, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. For the sake of time, I'm not going to recap and reopen up those two statements, those two outcomes that the Lord spoke of. If you missed the sermons I record, you can always welcome, go back and listen to them. But this evening or this afternoon, my intention right now is over the next two weeks, this week and the next, is to unpack the third of these statements that is before us from the mouth of the lips of our Lord. The statement that reads this way, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself loaded with meaning loaded with doctrine loaded with much to speak about and to unpack and I trust by the grace of God that he'll bless us as we as we do so so let's start from the top and I when I am lifted up our savior says We're New Testament Christians. We've read our Bibles and we're some 2,000 years after the crucifixion of our Lord and the resurrection and the ascension. So, So we're able to look at this text and know almost exactly what he's speaking of. It's very clear to us when he speaks these words that Jesus is speaking about his impending death that is yet to come. When I am lifted up, it seems very clear to us. But strictly speaking... The term that is used here by our Lord, where translated in our English Bibles, lifted up, can actually be translated exalted. It can be translated brought high, even made great. And some have suggested that our Lord's words here in verse 32 are intended to depict his glorification. In other words, he's opening his mouth and saying, I'm going to, in a few days' time, be exalted, lifted up, made great. I am going to be glorified among you. I don't disagree with the truth. In fact, Jesus says as much in verse 23 of the text that is before us. If you remember, he himself said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. 
I don't disagree with the overarching truth, not even disagreeing with the possibility that that may be eluded in the text. But it seems pretty clear to me the primary point of lifting up language in verse 32 is not that. But rather it's the picture that Jesus is giving of the mode or the type of death that he will die. On its own, it might sound cryptic. What does lifted up mean? But in the context, it just seems so ultra clear, even by what Jesus says. He says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, we're told, in verse 33. And in verse 34, a text that we'll get to in a few weeks' time, God willing, we see that the crowd, at least from this point, they, they seem to have understood what Jesus is saying. Because the kickback comes, what do you mean you're going to die? What do you mean? That's not, the, that's not the son of man that we've heard of and read about. What is this son of man that you speak of? So it seems like the crowd understand what Jesus is saying. We're far removed from the context. But in here, Jesus, when he says these words, it's clear that he's speaking about the type of death that he will die. Lifted from the ground, elevated. Crucifixion is in his mind. In fact, lifted up terminology is used throughout the new testament but in the gospel according to john it's only used on five occasions four of those occasions in this gospel it speaks expressly to jesus christ himself and every one of those occasions the context always suggests that jesus is speaking about crucifixion it speaks about him being crucified and if you're curious and you're asking in your mind what about the last of the four that doesn't directly speak to Christ well it points to Christ because that's found in John chapter 3 when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he was giving an example of what taken place in Numbers chapter 21 in the old covenant when a when a plague of fiery serpents had come and began to devour the people of Israel and then God says to Moses make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up lift it up before the people and we know that's pointing to christ but more on that a little bit later lifted up language is very clearly speaking prophetically it's pointing forward to the death of jesus christ death by crucifixion so we have two elements death and death by crucifixion that's the what but now i want to ask the why why must he be lifted up? Well, beloved, the scripture is clear, and I've said it over and again from this pulpit that Jesus came to die. That was his express purpose. From eternity past, in the heart of God, it was predestined that Christ would come, the eternal Son, the one who has no beginning and has no end, to come into this world with the express purpose to take upon himself our humanity, to be as human as everyone in these seats, yet without sin. One who tires, one who hung, gets hungry, one who gets thirsty, one who, if you cut him, he bleeds, one who is able to die. That Jesus came into this world as human, to partake in the full human experience in order to lay down his life for his people. Now many were shocked when Jesus did indeed lay down his life for his people. Even his disciples, but he was never a secret from the mouth of our Lord. He didn't keep it to himself. In fact, it was abundantly clear throughout scripture that this is why he came. In the old covenant, as well as in you, pointing about to the Messiah, it is a Messiah who would come indeed to die. 
And from the very beginning, when Jesus was born, his name was given. What was his, na- his name? Is Jesus. You know why? Because his name is to be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's come to seek and save that which was lost. How does he save his people from their sin? Well, the greatest example of that is John the Baptist, the one who ushered in, the great prophet who ushered in the ministry of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he came and he introduced him to Israel, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How is sin taken away? It's taken away through atonement, through the shedding of blood. And when the people of Israel thought in their mind, Lamb, Lamb of God, immediately they thought either one of two words, either sacrifice or substitute. Jesus came. Jesus came to die. No secret. All the while through his ministry, he's speaking to his disciples over and over again throughout his earthly ministry. He he told his disciples that that's why he has come. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. He's going to be delivered to the Gentiles and he would be killed. And then on the third day, he will rise again. No secrets. He alluded to his death to the crowds as well before him. He made it very clear, not as clear as he did to his disciples in in private, but he made it clear as we work our way through the Gospels. We see that very abundantly, but more so when he set his eyes, his gaze upon Jerusalem. When he set his gaze because his hour has come for the Son of Man now to be glorified, now to willingly lay down his life, he made it abundantly clear that he's heading towards death, but not any death. He is very specific and detailed about what type of death he's going to die, as he has done here in John chapter 12. Messiah has come to be the suffering servant. He has come to lay down his life. And in laying down of his life, just like a kernel of wheat buried in the earth, as he says just previous in our text, he too will be buried in the earth in order that he die and then produced a harvest of righteousness. That was his plan all along. However, we know that simultaneously that God's decree is the one that is Always, once it's said and done, it's perfect. But alongside the decree of God is also the plotting and the contriving and the, the planning of man. Man plans in his heart and he could be planning wickedness laced with sin and depravity and an unrighteousness. But is that apart from the will of God? You know, these... These Jews, the religious leaders that crucified our Lord, had already made a plan to kill him. Remember back in chapter 11, verse 53, they'd already convened as a Sanhedrin. All of them got together and they made a decision. Jesus must die. They knew that much. However, they didn't at this point quite know how they're going to accomplish that death. But it was fully known to Christ. Because when it's all said and done, even in the hands of the depraved, wicked, evil individuals, hands that are laced with blood, when it's all said and done, what is accomplished is the predestined plan of God. Because God is sovereign over it and he is always in control. And although the Jews are yet to determine how they will murder our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ has already announced that he will die by way of of crucifixion. But that's remarkable to me. 
I hope it's remarkable to you as well. Because if we dig a little deeper into the context, we'll find out that that would have been the last thing on people's minds. Crucifixion wasn't a Jewish thing. Crucifixion was a Roman thing. It's the Romans that crucified. It was their method of punishment. And even then, beloved, crucifixion was so horrific. It was so out, uh, inhumane, so bloody, so gruesome that Rome would reserve such a death, not for Roman citizens, unless it was the extreme examples, but rather for non-Roman citizens who committed the the most vilest of crimes against the empire of Rome or against Caesar himself. We're talking treason. We're talking insurrection. We're talking the vilest of rebellion is only worthy to possibly, possibly crucify a non-Roman citizen or non-Roman. It's a terrible way to die. And it wasn't exactly the preferred punishment method for the -the run-of-the-mill criminal They had other ways to execute. But this was for the worst of the worst. As far as Rome was concerned, it was for the scum of the earth. But here's the thing. Rome had no issue with Christ. Rome had no qualm with Jesus. Rome had no claim on Jesus. No issue. It is the Jews who had an issue with Jesus, not Rome. So how's crucifixion going to be pulled off? Rome wasn't about to crucify a man just because he'd offended the sensibilities of of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. When you read this text and you see how Christ has has foretold of exactly the mode and the type of death that he's going to die, he's going to be lifted up from the earth. Beloved brothers and sisters, this is not Christ saying the most possible way of my death, but almost he's saying this is almost the way that no one would ever envisage. As it stands, it was far more likely if the Jews wanted Jesus to die, and they did, it was far more likely if they wanted to accomplish that, they would have to do it on their own. They'd have to stone him. After all, the testimony of the Jews what they were convicting Jesus of if you remember was blasphemy he who is a man makes himself out to be God and the punishment according to the Old Testament law of blasphemy is what stoning to death the congregation is to come around and stone Jesus to death or stone the blasphemer I should say to death according to their law. But Jesus says, no, even right now, even right now, he says, no, I, I am going to be lifted up. I'm going to be crucified. When you read this and when you acknowledge what Jesus is saying, you must acknowledge that he is no victim, that he's in control, even over his own death, even how he will die. And even from the point of view, from the observer, you ask questions, how is that going to be accomplished? Jesus is in control. Now, beloved brothers and sisters, have you ever asked yourself difficult questions? Do you do that? Oh, good, I've got some nods. I'm not the only strange person here. Yeah, often I ask myself some difficult questions. I hope you do too, because we are certainly not all knowing. But have you ever asked yourself, not why Jesus would have to die, but why crucifixion? 
why, why would he need to hang upon a tree? You can read through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and it's all prophetic. It's all pointing towards the fulfillment that will be completely fulfilled in Christ. The type and the shadow finds its substance in Jesus. You you can find in the Old Testament that that there's a necessity for death. That's pretty clear. But if that's all you go by, it's very unlikely that you'll come away thinking, Ah, I get it. The Messiah needs to be crucified. You actually won't come to that conclusion likely. According to the Old Covenant, we can come to the conclusion that without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement for sin. We see examples in that throughout the Old Covenant. We can come to the conclusion that the penalty for a crime or breaking God's law is death. There's there's recompense that needs to be made. And the shedding of blood in particular for a capital crime is required. Sin against God requires the shedding of blood and the countless animals, perfect and spotless, that were brought to the temple or the tabernacle. You see that as an example in the old covenant. No forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. Atonement comes through blood sacrifice. Blood is required. You see that through the old covenant. Lambs have their throat slit by the worshipper. And that's a bloody occasion. A lot of red. Stoning a man in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, also is a very, very horrific and very bloody occasion. So we see blood in both those modes. We see death in both those modes. So I ask the question, why did God in his infinite wisdom choose choose to, to send his own beloved son to die by way of of crucifixion, a type of death. It is so horrific, so painful, so excruciating, so humiliating upon the cross. Why did God choose that, that Christ, His Son, would atone for sins by hanging on Him on a tree? Why that method and not another? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Well, I'll do you one better. I've asked myself that question and I've asked my seminary professor that question many years ago. He's a godly man that loves the Lord, very well versed in scripture. And do you want to know what his answer was or would you just want me to move on? I'm sure you want to know what the answer was. His answer to my question, brother, why is it that God chose that Christ, his son, would be crucified and not die in another bloody way? His answer was simple, because God decreed it that way. Honestly, I was hoping for more. Because God decreed it that way was his answer. And that is the essence of truth. God decreed it that way. And that's good, and we should be completely at rest in all the decrees of God. God decreed it that way. That's it. God decreed it that way. And if God has decreed it, now God is good in all his ways. Everything he does is good. Then who am I to question why? What a great answer. It's not a cop-out, beloved. It's a great response. In fact, it's the right response. And often you've heard me say that to you when you ask tough questions. God is sovereign. God has decreed it that way. Not a cop-out. It's the good response. It's the right response. But I think here... I think scripture gives us a little bit more detail to consider. A little bit more 
detail, perhaps that may shine some light as to why crucifixion was required. So let me begin by saying it was God's decree. We need to acknowledge that. We need to bear that in mind. It was God's decree. And I'll get to that point soon. But he's a God who can draw straight lines with a crooked stick. You've heard me say that before. In other words, his purposes, says then, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We know Christ is referring to the event in Numbers 21, now some 1,500 years before, before the time that he spoke and we know what the, 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 uh, the event speaks of. Um, the, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, have been rescued from the land of Egypt. They're in the wilderness at this point in time, but they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're bickering. We want to go back. We had so much back there. Yeah, we will say, but we had so much. Take us back. Take it. And God just had enough of their grumblings. And so God sent them a plague of fiery serpents. These serpents were horrendous. They bite and the bite was lethal. There was no remedy, no remedy. And these people, the people of Israel, were actually dying and flopping dead all over the place. No remedy. In and of themselves, once bitten, you cannot do anything about it. Once you've been bitten, it's game over. No remedy. And then Moses intercedes before Yahweh, and Yahweh is merciful, and he hears him, and he says, okay, go and make for yourself a, a bronze serpent, place it on the pole, and then lift it up before the people, and let that be the remedy. I'm providing a remedy, and those who by faith look upon, behold, behold the bronze serpent that is erected or lifted up in the wilderness, they, they will not die, but rather be granted life. And our Lord is speaking to Nicodemus about this. And he says, now that was referring to me in the same way the Son of Man will be lifted up, he says. In the same way the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal, eternal life. That I have come to be the provision of God. I am the remedy of God to a, 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 a disease, a condition that has no remedy. But it's not a condition that's only affected the people of Israel. The condition that Jesus is a remedy for is a condition that has affected all of humanity. Every man, woman, and child. It's a condition that has no remedy, beloved. Apart from Christ. And Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up. And those who look upon me in faith, they will have life. Sure, they should die, but they will have life. They'll escape death and they will have, have life. In other words, it's necessary that I, I be hung upon the tree. It's necessary that I'm lifted up. It's necessary that I'm crucified. And although this event, this event that has taken place 1,500 years earlier, there in Numbers chapter 21, and Jesus articulates it there with Nicodemus in John chapter 12, uh, chapter 3, although it paints for us a picture and gives us some greater insight of the atoning work of our Lord and our Savior upon the cross, it doesn't quite complete the picture. But it does point us in the right directions. That's a strange way to say it, isn't it? Because plural, it's pointing us in the right directions. Because yes, it points us, as Jesus has said, so obviously it points us forward. It points us forward to what takes place upon the cross. The provision of God being lifted up on the tree of Calvary. The only remedy for the curse of sin. 
But also he points backwards to look at what has taken place before the people of Israel ever existed, before God, Yahweh, had made a covenant with Abraham to a place not only where one nation is in question, but rather to a place where all humanity is represented. Even the Greeks that are in the text, but more on that next week, he points us back to the garden some two and a half thousand years earlier to where the deadly venom of the ancient serpent first entered into the world. To be clear, it points us to two federal heads of humanity. Back to the first Adam on the one hand, and it points us forward to the last Adam on the other hand. You see, he must point us backwards to the garden where the curse began before he can point us forward to Calvary where the, the curse is crushed. He has to. Lifted up language on the, on the mouth of our Lord here in, before Nicodemus in John 3 and even here in John 10 brings to mind the tree of Calvary upon which the Lord is to be crucified to bring an end to the curse. It, it also brings to mind the tree in Eden through which the curse began. You see, a tree is central to both the curse of death and a tree is central also for where the curse of death is crushed and the gift of eternal life is given. Not merely the tree itself, don't help, don't hear me speak about a, an object, the tree itself. No, but what the federal head in both cases, Adam on the one hand and Jesus on the other, what the federal heads in both cases do with that tree. Start with Adam. Adam's the crowning glory of God's creation. We know this much. He was blessed, placed in the garden. He, he was to be fruitful and, and multiply and make many little Adams. To have dominion over the earth and creation. He was to be a reflection. A, a reflection to, to image God, the great God, the great king. Adam was to be the vice regent under God. His every need was provided for by a good and loving God. And God communed with Adam. He had intimate love relationship with him. It was intimate. It was personal. It was beautiful. Adam, for Adam, that garden was bliss. He had it all. He, it was paradise. For food, God had provided. He had provided an abundance of trees and even the tree of life for perpetual life. Eat, Adam. Go ahead. Choose whatever tree, whatever colored fruit you want. Just eat it all. It's all good for you. Eat it. Eat it. Enjoy. God is a gracious God. Eat. You. I've given you all that you require. All these varieties. Eat, Adam, until your heart's content. Only one condition. It's a test to obedience. Only this tree, Adam, this one tree, probably looks no different to any others, but this one tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just don't eat from that, just trust me. But eat from the rest. Eat from the rest, but this one tree, don't eat. Because if you eat from this tree, you will be cursed. Trust me, Adam. Look at all of that I've given you. Look at my love for you. Look at my care for you. But Adam, you have to believe me. You're lacking for nothing. You have me. You have nothing to want. 
Place your trust in me, Yahweh would say. Your heart's desire, fix it upon me. Let me be the one who satisfies the deepest longings of your soul because I can, Adam. I'm good, God. I'm giving you all that you need. Just don't eat of that tree. Trust me. A test to obedience. We know story. Adam disobeyed. His wife Eve was bamboozled, deceived by the ancient serpent. She ate and he was right there with her. So she gave some to him and he ate also. He ate from the forbidden tree. Adam, hear this, disobeyed. Adam disobeyed. The result of his disobedience curse. The curse of God has come. Death entered into the world. Adam was kicked out of that wonderful place, the paradise, kicked out of the garden. Eden's gates were locked closed. You cannot come back in, Adam. Adam is now alienated, him and his wife, from the immediate presence of God, and they can never return back into Eden to eat from the tree. Adam failed. But God was merciful. You know the story. That God is merciful. And he didn't destroy Adam and Eve. He didn't destroy humanity. No, he didn't. He allowed them to continue. He allowed them to procreate, to make little Adams. To come from his loin, that is from Adam. So he becomes the federal head. He always was the federal head of all creation. Now, here's the thing. Everyone born in Adam is born under the curse of Adam. Humanity plunged into the curse of sin. Adam's unrighteousness now infected all of humanity. From Genesis 3, as we work our way through biblical history, over and over again, we have a display on every page of the depravity, the darkness, the sinfulness of what has taken place due to the sin of Adam. The world had become dark. The thoughts of man are evil continuously. The heart of man, desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Man left in and of himself is wicked in every one of his faculties. The biblical scripture and the testimony of the word shows us over and over again from Genesis chapter 3 that it's depraved. And from that point on, from Genesis chapter 3, beloved, one who is, who is calling upon the name of the Lord because God has, has done something in the, in the heart of man. Because in, in every generation, God has for himself a remnant. There is none other than for them to seek. Oh God, when will the promise from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 come to fruition? When is the seed of the woman going to come and finally, fully and finally crush the head of the serpent and take care of the sin problem? Take care of the, the curse problem. When is someone going to come and reverse this curse? And then we fast forward 4,000 years from that time. And now we speak of the last Adam, terminology from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's the eternal son who has no beginning, has no end. He's the one, he's the one true God. Becomes man completely, as I said earlier, sharing in our humanity. The full ex human experience he, he shared in and he comes and dwells upon the earth. And when he comes, he comes born of a woman, born under the law. Adam was given a test of obedience. And now Christ is born under a woman, of a woman and born under the law. Christ now needs to obey the law of God. 
Born under the law means he needs to obey the law of God and every law, every commandment God has specifically given him. The Father has given him specific commandments to obey. And he obeyed faultlessly. He obeyed perfectly in every way. When he was the most vulnerable, hungry and thirsty and tired in the wilderness, the ancient serpent comes once again. The very serpent that bamboozled and deceived Eve and Adam fell into sin. He comes once again and he launches a full-scale attack and assault at Jesus Christ when he's the weakest in his, in his humanity. And yet time over and time again, he stands firm. He stands firm on his ground in faith and he does not submit. He does not succumb. He's a champion. He overcomes and he acts righteously where Adam failed. Jesus passed. Jesus succeeds all through his life. Perfect obedience that he can say, I only do that which is pleasing to the father. That he can declare to a crowd of hostile people and say, which one of you can convict me of a single sin? And no one crickets. This is who Christ is. This is who Christ is. He passed the test of obedience with absolute flying colors. But hear this, the greatest of all tests was yet to come. The greatest of tests were just like Adam just like the first Adam, come by way of a tree. Adam was commanded not to consume the fruit of that one tree in the garden. The last Adam was commanded to consume the fruit of that tree on Calvary's hill. Commanded to bear the pain, the reproach. Commanded to consume the cup of judgment. Commanded to drink the bitter, unmitigated wrath of a holy God, the Father, upon unrighteousness. He hung upon the tree to drink the curse. For cursed is he who is hung on a tree. What was God the Father asking of his son? It was unimaginable pain, beloved. Not merely to refrain from consuming fruit when you have all the fruit in the world, but rather he was asking him to consume the unimaginable, to become a curse. And to be treated as though he was the vilest of sinners. That was the test. The greatest test. Obedience under the most unbearable circumstances. And we're told with tears in his eyes. There at the garden of Gethsemane. Christ cries out. Take this cup from me. That was the righteous thing to say. Take this cup from me. The perfect son of God could never desire to consume the fruit of that tree. 
tree that is stamped in and defined by unrighteousness. Adam did, but Christ could never desire that. Christ could never desire to be a curse. He could never desire to be sin when he knew no sin. His desires are holy and perfect and righteous and, and glorious, spotless. How can he desire such things? Father, take this cup from me, is his cry, is his plead, with tears running down his eyes. How could he desire that the Father forsake him upon that tree? Ilahi, ilahi, lama sabachthani. He couldn't desire any of that. This was his test to obedience under the most unbearable circumstances. But the Father has commanded. And his food is to do the Father's will. The object of the love of Christ is the Father. And because of his love for the Father and for the sake of his people, he consumed the fruit of Calvary's tree in full. And beloved, he did it in my place. Christian, he did it in your place, in your stead. It should have been you. It should have been me. He became a curse for me. Galatians 3.13 Where Abraham failed, the last Adam succeeded. Obedient to the last You remember Philippians chapter 2 that he became obedient even unto death. It doesn't stop there. He needs to say the rest. Even death upon the cross. When it was all said and done, Christ passed perfect obedience. He swallowed up the curse. So that Eden's gates will once again swing open. And we, those who by faith, by the grace of God and through faith in repentance and faith come and embrace Christ for all that he is as the resurrected Savior who died upon the cross for me, are united in him to enter in and eat of the tree of life. That tree is Christ. That tree is Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. John 6, 53 and 56. In Him, in Christ, in Christ, the gates of Eden are swung open. 
in Him we have full and intimate and personal and wonderful and glorious relationship, communion with the only God of the universe in Christ. Why was it necessary that Christ would be hung upon the tree? Because God decreed it. Amen. And to teach us, that is your heart and mine, Christian, that by means of a tree, sin and its curse came into this world. And by means of a tree, sin and that same curse is crushed by the one who is the author of life, the Son of God in flesh, the true and only Savior of the world, so that all who come to trust in Him may be forgiven. That that curse does not need to be poured out upon your soul or mine. That Christ, upon that cross, when He declared, it is finished, done. Rest. Rest in Jesus. Let's pray.